Welcome to another episode of the Hyper Growth Podcast. This is the second episode where we talk about the startup ecosystem in Europe. Today, I sit down with Roland Da Silva, founder of Strategy Arcs Advisory Limited. Roland has an extensive working history, which led him to be an strategy advisor today. He's moved around the world from Zambia to Zimbabwe to the UK, Spain, and Portugal, and even North America and Latin America as well. I'm your host, Tiffany Monahan. Let's get started. Really, as you said correctly, I've been in management consulting for now going on 26 years, and I have seen it from many different angles, strategy, operations, HR, organization, technology, and then, you know, in my current role as a strategy advisor and founder of Strategy Arcs. And the reason I called it Strategy Arcs is because the word arcs comes from Latin, which is a lookout, uh, a lookout point into where we are heading from a strategic perspective. It would be great if you could share, you know, a little bit more about what you are doing today with arcs and how you're advising startups and investors. So with uh, strategy arch today I am I work both with uh, existing corporates uh, helping them with uh, either the strategy in terms of its definition or its deployment as well as a transformational related programs within those organizations uh, the way I typically engage with them is either as an expert coming in to form, part of the steering committee or the project management team, if it's more hands-on, and effectively working with them, making sure that there is that knowledge transfer to the people who work in the organization. And as I say to my customers, you know, I need to be uh, dispensable. You need to be able to run with this when I'm not here. And therefore that knowledge transfer is really critical uh, for them to, to be able to work with what is developed to make it personal to their organizations so that then they can actually execute on it very quickly. I also work with startups. Uh, I work with startups in, in, from three, real, three different dimensions. Number one, I help them with their strategy and the visioning process of what they're trying to achieve in terms of their go-to-market as well as you know what what is their overall ambition in terms of what they want to become as they grow up the second part is in the go to market go to market i look at from a very uh, two different perspectives one one part of it is what can they do on their own in terms of building uh, capability to speedily access the market and the second part would be partnerships and alliances. A lot of times the infrastructure already exists to go to market. The question is, is the um, attitude to collaborate there and can that attitude towards collaboration be leveraged to, to really execute rapidly? And that requires partnership. And when I say partnership, it's, it's a two-way street. It cannot be a one-way street that benefits only one of the parties. And the third area I support startups is with the fundraising. 
Now, with the fundraising, I am very, very specific. I don't help anyone and everyone with fundraising because that's not my focus. My focus is strategy. Make sure you have a solid strategy. Make sure it's road tested. Make sure it's, you know, scalable. And that will then be an attractive proposition. And once I have road tested that proposition, then, and I am confident with that proposition, I'm happy to support them with fundraising in terms of developing the pitch decks, taking that out to the relevant investors, helping them understand who they should be targeting and talking to in the investor community and enabling those conversations to take place. When they get into the financial details, I tend to stay out of that because I'm not a uh, financial management expert. That's not my bag of tricks. So that can be done by those who are specialists in that area. Could you talk about the pitch decks and maybe share some examples of successful decks that you've put together and successful conversations with investors that the listeners here might be able to learn from? Putting together a pitch deck, what is really critical in that pitch deck is number one, demonstrating to the investors that you really understand the market you are playing in. And not just in the market that you are playing in today, but how you think that market could evolve. Because what really investors are looking for, they are looking for propositions that are scalable, that can uh, be leveraged, that can be applied in different industries. They're looking for differentiation. They're looking to understand what is the value to the customer that the startup may be delivering. And given that they're looking at those variables, it is incumbent upon the, the, the startups to really show how that is going to be the case. Now, there are some startups that may already enter a market with players, meaning uh, already occupied players in that market, at which point then you really need to drill deeper into showing the investors that you understand the different market segments, uh, the different dimensions and perspectives of that market, and how you as a startup are going to bring differentiation to the game, how you're going to add value to the customer, and not just be an also played. If I were to be more specific, the couple of startups that um, I initially engaged with, when, when you really engage in these deeper questions of ownership, because ultimately that's what it is, uh, when you're bringing on an investor, it's of ownership. Those are discussions that really test the relationships within the startup, especially of the founders. How aligned are they in their visions? Uh, what brought them together? Uh, are they truly aligned? Have they really got each other's backs? And if if those questions are addressed effectively, then you know getting into a pitch deck and developing a pitch deck is just you know a normal exercise that can be done over a, a couple of weeks, right? But it's it's the real crux of the matter is the relationships, the vision, the business model, the strategy, the ambition. You will get investors that will come, that will try to pull you in different directions. Because let's not forget, investors already have their own portfolio of interests. 
right? And they look at things from their own perspective, their own vantage point of where their investments are and potentially how this new investment could be an add-on to what they have or could be uh, leveraged in a way that amplifies their access to market or their channels to market as well. So it, it, it's finding the right balance and that requires, you know, really paying attention to the details and understanding what the motivations are from each side of the, you know, of, of the business transaction. And do you think we could dive maybe a little bit deeper into this topic of the investors? They're, they're having their own priorities as well. And it's been said that there's a, a low risk appetite and that the investors within Europe, they're really focusing on seed and early stages of funding. And I would love to understand from you the perception around from the investors within Europe and really where their priorities are as far as the companies that they're investing in. Well, I think this, the, before we even get to Europe, I think it's important to have a bit of a broader discussion on investment. And if, if we look at the VC space, which is really, you know, the, the investors in the startup space, they, the actual VC industry began in the US. And if we go back to the transactions that have happened in the last 20 years, what we see is that there has been uh, some degree of also specialization in the industry. Uh, when, when you talk to VCs, they tend to classify themselves as early stage, which is pre-seed, seed, and then you get the Series A, Series B, Series C, D, E, and F, and so on, right? And if you go to the U.S. nowadays, what you realize is that there is a greater degree of specialization. What may be changing is the size of the check in each of those segments, right? Uh, but there's a greater degree of specialization. When you then try to say, okay, how does that fit in Europe? what you realize is that in the last five to seven years, the VC space has really accelerated significantly in Europe. You, we are seeing a lot more VCs local, meaning European VCs that have been formed, that have been created, Not, notwithstanding that the big American VCs are also playing in Europe, right? And why are they playing in Europe? because the startup game is not about a technology. At the end of the day, it's really about talent. It's about people that have those capabilities that uh, you know, can be game-changing to a sector, a segment, or an industry. So it's people that are the drivers of the change. I love what you just said there, that it's not about the technology, it's really about the talent. And especially since you've had so much experience in HR strategy and consulting, could you elaborate more about why the talent is so important? Well, as I, as I tell the startups, as I try to tell everybody I interact with, the basic component of society is the human being. That's the basic component of society, right? Uh, as yet, we don't have robots 
doing things out of their own free will, meaning they need to be programmed to do something. And who programs that robot is a person, a human being, right? So the basic component of society is a human being. Now, those human beings, us, you, me, and the many uh, uh, others out in the world, 7 billion plus, have a background, education, experiences that enable us to learn and grow. The question then becomes, how do we translate those learnings, those experiences into products or services that can be beneficial to society? Now, if you look at the way you know, the current big tech players are, I'm not going to name them. We all know those big names. Uh, we know the acronyms. I'm not going to, uh, my objective is not to give publicity to anyone, but, you know, we all know those, their acronyms have been formed around them. So when you look at them, what is the core characteristic you can see? The core characteristic you can see is that they have defined a specific problem that they were trying to solve. That problem may have been, let's say, search, or that problem may have been voice, or that problem may have been efficient logistics, or that problem may have been, you know, getting a product from A to B, or selling a product in a different way. They started with a clear definition of the problem, and they worked backwards to find out how they could optimize and make that more efficient. So they always started with the customer. And it is that customer that has helped them or the usage of that customer that has helped them generate this tons and tons and petabytes of data. And hence, we're now moving into a data economy. We can get into that a bit later. I don't want to jump into that just yet. So it is, it is the idea of working backwards and it is a mindset issue. So culturally speaking, if you look at Europe and we look at the education system in Europe, Europe has one of the leading education systems in the world. But then when you get to, you know, uh, postdoctorate uh, education and investigation and research, at times one tends to get the impression that we do research as a process rather than because we have a goal. And I think, in Europe, what Europe needs to think about is, great, we're doing some fantastic research, but what are the problems that we are solving? And yeah. how, how are those problems scalable and applicable in many different contexts? And when I think context, I'm thinking geographical context, I'm thinking from a cons customer, consumer, client perspective, and I use those three words very in a very differentiated way because one is B2C, the other is B2B, and the, you know, the different types of customers. So understanding the different contexts, understanding who you're serving, understanding their needs is critical to getting into those markets and understanding right. the dynamics of those markets. And I love that you use this example of the professors who or the, the professors, the doctorate students who are just doing research for the sake of that's what they do. And that's the process. 
And rather than thinking about the problem they're trying to solve, and there is a VC or there was a VC firm in the US who actually formed a list of 25 key problems that they felt that in the next 20 years, the world had to solve or things would go to complete chaos and they would only invest in those 25 ideas, companies who are addressing those 25 ideas. Right, and when I, when I said research is a process, let's let's i'm not i'm not you know i i haven't done deep research in, like the the magnificent scientists and and uh, researchers out there i'm not a scientist i am as i said at the beginning a strategist so as a strategist i have an obligation to look holistically at things uh, to understand potentially where are the challenges or the choke points where is there opportunity and how can that opportunity be addressed? And if you look at research today, the way it is structured in Europe, what are we rewarding, right? So the researchers are being rewarded for publishing papers, which I think is fantastic because it's also about their development. But as I say again, every coin has two sides. So the next step for me that is missing and that needs to be built on is then how do we take that, that paper and that solution and productize it? And that is, I think, where uh, if I was a policymaker in Europe, I would say that is the step we need to focus on because there's a lot of research out there. There's a lot of great work done. But how can we then say, okay, we've got so much great research just to throw out a uh, 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 a number for the sake of our conversation. Let's say we have 100 research papers. Let's segment those research papers. And let us say, okay, 50 of those are product can be productized, fantastic. And of those 50, 20 can be scaled globally. So that's what we should be focusing on. We should be focusing on those 20 of the 100 that can be scaled globally because they're productizable, right? We're, if we have learned anything from the pandemic, one thing that is clear, digitization is here to stay. Now, digitization for some people means that I can do what I was doing manually, I can do that online, right? That is one way of looking at it. But there's another dimension to digitization, which is what I would describe as dematerialization, meaning previously, you wanted to watch a movie, you went to the cinema. Now we get that movie as a digital product. But there are other industries. Take, for example, you now can see your doctor online, but you still need to get your medicine. So there are parts of that process of going to get your medicine collected that can be optimized through digitization. In that part of those elements can be included in the telemedicine platform, can be linked up to the pharmacies that already exist. We don't need a digital pharmacy. Let me just say that clearly because I've seen things happen in the transport space that raise questions about, I thought we had enough taxis, but maybe we need more taxis, for example. I'll leave that, that's a different debate altogether. But all I'm saying is there, there is existing infrastructure. Let us see how we can leverage the existing infrastructure. 
not make it part of the problem, but make it part of the solution. And in so doing, as we digitize those processes holistically, then let us also use the data that's generated from there to build further efficiencies into the system in the sense that it's not just a question about efficiency. It's also a question of the data should lead us to, to break through solutions, to new ways of doing things. But we cannot do that if we don't have the core raw material, raw material which is the data, right? So it's, it's a step-by-step -step process, but we need to go on that road fast. Right, and so with this reliance on tech and digitization, there's concern that Europe even lost some of its previous tech glory. So if you take the top 85% of the stocks in the US, the UK and France, the US has 28 of those top 85 stocks being tech companies and only one and 7% in the UK and France. So that's a huge difference. And on top of it, there's also the 5 trillion GDP gap between the EU and the US. And if we go back to this idea of, you know, Europe kind of lost the tech glory, do you think that this is in fact true? And do you see startups today working towards closing this gap? Right. So as, as you have framed it, I don't think startups are looking at that broad picture. They are more focused on their market, their segments, and sometimes even a little too short-sighted with regards to the capabilities that they are bringing together. I think the question, as you framed it, is something that is being looked at by the economists, by the policymakers, to see, to better understand what is the challenge and how can they, through policy, stimulate that innovation in the European context. So depending on who you talk to, you will get an answer based on their focus. And do you think that startups should be having this in the back of their mind that they're contributing to this wider European ecosystem that's really trying to thrive? So it depends how you how people interpret messages, right? So one way startups would interpret the message as, as you framed it is we are part of the solution rather than the problem, but don't just tell us a few words, show, it, show us that through actions and policy in terms of, you know, what are the incentives for this innovation? Why shouldn't we take this innovation? I mean, there, there, there are a number of founders and startups that initially came up with their ideas in Europe, but then went and incorporated their companies on the West Coast of the US. Now, why did they do that? Was it because there they were, they weren't the right incentives back home? Was it because the market structure wasn't ready to give them a high value exit? Was it that they found West Coast or East Coast or US-based uh, venture capitalists that convinced them to come there because it also helped them up their game and raise their ambitions. So there's a mindset question to that as well. We, can, we need, when we, 
when we try to apportion responsibility, I think we also need to be very equitative in where that responsibility is. As I say, a coin has two sides. We cannot just look at things from our perspective. There are other perspectives that we need to factor into the equation. And having spoken to founders that have gone, and even one of the startups I worked with, actually that relationship initiated because their investor was based on the West Coast of the US. I met that investor by coincidence at a conference and that investor then introduced me to the startup and that's how we started working together but you know it's all about finding the right balance and i think the question european policymakers need to ask is if we really want to create this bustling startup ecosystem let's understand what the needs are of the startup founders what is it that will incentivize them to stay at home rather than go abroad? How can we make sure that our uh, structure facilitates the type of exits they are looking for? How can we facilitate that global ambition in terms of growing into multiple different mar markets and not have this vision of, you know, uh, Let's let's first develop the the product for our home market, and then let's forget about the rest of European countries. Let's go and launch the product in the U.S. You know, and I think there are also other considerations that need to be taken. It's not just a question of financing. It's not just a question of incentives. I think the problem needs to be looked at more holistically. Uh, think of the life life cycle of a startup, right? Two guys come up with an idea in a garage. They then put pen to paper and then they crack on and start developing a solution. At some point, they're going to need financing. How accessible is that financing? At some point, they're going to need an office. How easy is it to get office space, cheap office space? They're going to need you know, different types of services. How accessible are those services? I mean, one of the things I do with startups personally is when I help them, say, for example, on the partnership and go-to-market alliances side, I don't charge them a fixed fee. I charge them based on success. And that's because I am confident of what I take on that I will actually get them those results. So one of those startups I helped enter help them enter in a couple of different markets in a, you know, in a difficult context that we're living in. So it also depends on adapting to the realities within which you work and you know, grabbing the bull by the horns rather than trying to apportion blame. And so one thing that you brought up a little bit early on that I don't want to let go is around who is actually responsible for the European ecosystem? Is it the government? Is it policymakers? Is it the founders? Is it investors? Who do you think is the responsible party? Let me turn the question around and ask you, Tiffany, what is the, what is the desired outcome we want? Tell me the outcome 
and then I'll work backwards to, to apportion the responsibility. So maybe, maybe, and thank you for saying that, maybe we haven't clearly articulated our desired outcome. If we haven't articulated our desired outcome, then how are we going to align the different stakeholders to achieve that outcome? Yes, I, I would agree with that. And in reading about the launch of Startup Europe or Scale Up Europe, there is the four key pillars, the one around deep tech, startups, corporates, lack of diversity in talent, and fundraising. And what I noticed about a lot of the goals for these different categories was actually to set goals and to come up with a plan. So I, I think what you just asked in response is the perfect answer. I mean, my experience with working with both corporates and startups, Tiffany, is that we may each come to the table as individuals with our own ideas of what the desired goal is. But if we're not aligned around that common goal, whether, I'm not asking for a detailed plan. Are we are aligned around the big parameters of what we want to achieve? And do we understand the mechanisms that will be there to support us, to enable us, to direct us, to, you know, help us with that uh, goal. If we understand and are aligned around those key principles, then the chance of achieving that desired goal is much greater than without a plan. Nobody's asking for you know, a robust strategic plan that is looking out 10 years. You set a vision. A vision is made up of you know, four core, three or four core ideas in terms of where you're heading, what is the timeline you want to achieve that in? And uh, you get on board the relevant partners, stakeholders to achieve that goal. Why? Because they believe in that vision. Maybe then we will realize in the process of developing that vision that maybe we need two visions or three visions depending on the focus areas. Uh, I know so far there have been some interesting statements made about developing artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, quantum computing. I'm waiting to see how those translate into actions because those are definitely three areas where Europe could potentially be well ahead of the US. And one area where Europe is already ahead is blockchain. If you look at blockchain, blockchain, when you go to the US, it is really understood as crypto. And, uh, you know, Bitcoin and all the currency side of things. That part of, of blockchain, totally agree. The U.S. is ahead of Europe. But when you look at the application of blockchain in different industries outside the financial services space, my feeling is that Europe is further ahead. Why? Because data privacy has gained much more importance in Europe through GDPR than in the US. So I think it's also, there's an important component in there of understanding the legislation and the legal frameworks that enable, at times, enable new industries and new technologies. So just to make that a bigger point, 
I'm going to throw out something a bit challenging here. I will say it is also important for the policymakers in Europe to consider what legislation is an enabler and what legislation is a barrier, right? Because sometimes legislation can play both roles. And if we are trying to build ourselves out of the pandemic for a brighter future, then we need to think of those things as well, because we'll never get a better moment to do that than now. And so then GDPR and the privacy regulations, they're seen as enablers of new opportunities and maybe one of the areas where deep tech can actually evolve into. Yes, because if I, if, if I were to think just, you remember earlier, we talked a bit about data. And I think sooner or later, depending on the industry, we uh, industry segment or industry vertical, I think we are heading towards uh, an economy where users, customers will want to be more empowered through their data. And uh, they've already learned a lot from the mistakes, either uh, that have affected them directly or indirectly, to give them that need to feel more secure by owning their own data. And obviously there'll be some that will choose to transact with their data and there'll be others that choose not to transact with their data. But I think the core component is empowering the customer because that empowerment will also play an important educational role in setting the expectations for the, cons for the individual or the consumer. And so keeping on this idea of the deep tech startups who are launching in Europe and then also connecting it to what we had talked about earlier of founders who found their company in, let's say, France or the Netherlands, for example, and instead of broadening their scope in Europe, they go to the, the U.S., do you think that this deep tech wave of potential companies that can be born will now have more of a motivation to expand in their local market instead? Because that's really where the privacy regulations are. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Tiffany. And just for the sake of our audience, because at times we band around words such as deep tech and different people understand different things from deep tech. I see deep tech as a classification of startup companies with the expressed objective of providing technology solutions based on substantial scientific or engineering challenges. This basically present challenges requiring, requiring lengthy research and development and large cap, capital investment before successful commercialization. Are we on the same page with that definition of deep tech? I'm so glad you asked, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. When you're looking at deep tech in each of these markets, I think what is also important to look at is Europe's or those countries specific industrial heritage because each country has a different industrial heritage. Call it their forte because that is where the capabilities are. And then also think about it from a service dimension. So one thing we have learned the hard way in Europe is that 
we are lagging behind in the services sector, at least the software services and hardware services sector, because we have seen certain uh, well-known tech players that are more robust at doing that service element. Uh, they're now pretty big. We referred to them earlier, you know, through acronyms and stuff like that. And having a robust understanding of the services dimension means that when you go to compete, you're not just competing on production or distribution. You're also comp competing on the, the, the actual commercialization to the customer. So if you look at how the big tech players have started, they always started with the problem, the customer, and they started working backwards. And now we are beginning to see them go into things such as robotization. Why? Because their approach, or at least my strategic analysis, tells me that what the tech companies have fundamentally done is they have focused on technologies that are horizontal, and that can be scaled across industry and across geography very quickly. Now that will work in pretty much every sector or industry. There are some industries, however, globally, it's the case with them globally, there's no way out of it, that some industries are vertically structured. A good example of that is healthcare. Healthcare is an industry where, due to the inherent structure and dynamics of the industry, it is difficult to horizontalize in a very easy, straightforward way. So while technologies such as AI, machine learning, uh, data analytics, et cetera, may be helpful to those industries, trying to horizontalize them is going to take time. So in the same way, if I was in Europe and looking at, you know, the, some of the countries you mentioned, and given that deep tech, you know, takes time to bring to market, one of the ways of addressing that is starting with the customer or the consumer and working backwards to understand how technology is going to disrupt the value chain. Now, that disruption may happen at a product level or a service level. It may happen at a, at a platform level. It may happen at a hardware or software level. And guess what? I'm even gonna take it a step backwards. It may even happen at the microchip level. So the, we, we're beginning to see a lot of action in the semiconductor space and the chip space because it's all a battle for the data. Who's going to create more value in the value chain, right? So I think when, when, company, when, when countries in Europe start looking at deep, deep tech, they need to look at the value chain holistically. They need to understand where, what that means in their industry segment of deep tech. And they need to look at how they can leverage their know-how, their knowledge, their talent, their people to speed up that disruption. You don't come with one card to a card game, you come with all cards, right? So they need to come with all the cards and hopefully, I think given Europe's industrial heritage, there are definitely, they definitely hold some trump cards. Question is how, how are they going to be played?
And just to touch briefly on the industrial heritage of Europe, how are they, you know, they're some of the stronghold companies of the entire European economy. Do you think that they're doing anything right now to enhance the tech ecosystem, which in turn they can benefit from as well, learning from these innovators and disruptors and even creating an ecosystem where they can thrive and have resources like funding or accelerator programs or things like that? So I cannot, honestly, Tiffany, I cannot speak too broadly because if I look at my background, my background in terms of industry knowledge and focus has been predominantly telecoms, healthcare, automotive, transport, uh, utilities, fin some some financial services, but not really, a I mean, I've done some work in FinTech, but I'm not really passionate about it in terms of, you know, <laughs> creating something new. So within those industries that I'm knowledgeable about, I think Europe has some advantages in the utility space, especially with regards to technologies around uh, renewables, technologies around uh, smart grids, technologies around power line communications through utility infrastructure. That's one area where, you know, there's been more development. Uh, there has been also significant investment and development by the automotive companies in Europe. They have been, you know, <laughs> looking at this space heavily and they have been looking at where they invest. And in the recent uh, 18 months, there have been some significant uh, um, announcements because of the emergence of the connected car, the emergence of the self-driving car uh, and autonomous driving systems. So everyone is beginning to place their bets. Now, the question I would throw out and maybe as a challenge is, have they been investing in European companies or have they been investing in global companies, right? And if not, why wasn't the talent in Europe leveraged? Is it because those solutions were not available? They were not developed? They were not invested in? Or is it because there were more robust solutions elsewhere, right? And that's one thing. The other thing is uh, they have been placing their bets across the value chain. So they've also been trying to play in the ride sharing space and you know uh, gain a position and a footing in the different components of the value chain because it's completely being disrupted so i think it's a bit of a let's wait and see but i don't see actions stopping or slowing down i just see it accelerating and one of the things that the, this some of these companies have been doing internally and have used the pandemic to do is flattening their organizations to make decision-making faster, speedier, uh, get better response times and go to market and stuff like that. Obviously, they still have challenges in terms of what we said earlier as to whether the legislation helps them or not. And so talking actually about organizational structure, within the startups, how do you think that corporates are now even adopting some of the models that startups have brought into the market, like the flat organization? Right, now, uh, let me try and address that part from two sides because I'm really passionate about that and I'll explain why. 
when when you deal with startups, one of the things I definitely recommend to the startups I've worked with is in your early stages, please don't give anybody any titles. Why? Because it brings the wrong mindset to the organization. When you start giving people titles, they have the expectation that they need to build a structure behind them. Uh, and that structure in one implicitly or explicitly fetters their egos, not healthy. The mindset of a startup is nimble, agile, get things done quickly. But to get things done quickly, you need to have a clear vision, a clear strategy, and you need to know what you're going to have to execute on. Once everyone knows what they, they have to execute on, it's a question of having the right mindset and the action-oriented people to get it done. It's, the title doesn't get anything done. The title just makes you say, I need someone to get it done. So then why did you come to the startup in the play first place is my question. Because, you know, I thought being in a startup makes you want to do things yourself, right? You want to be in the midst of the action. Obviously, when you grow, then yes, you need structure for, you know, the different markets and the go-to-market, et cetera. But in your early days, avoid structure. And include structure only if it is meaningful to the startup. Now, from a corporate perspective, that's a different ballgame. That, that depends on, you know, how long have you been around as a corporate? What is the purpose of the structure? What is the level of maturity of the organization? What is the level of digitization of processes? Let's not forget, a lot of the bureaucracy that exists in the large organizations is because a lot of stuff is still done manually. Right? And because it's done manually, you need people to do stuff, to put it in systems, to analyze it, etc. A lot of that, those paper-related processes should be optimized, automated, and a lot of companies have begun doing that. They've begun even rationalizing their IT portfolio and infrastructure. I mean, I've heard of companies that had seven or ten HR systems that have, you know, boiled it down to one HR system. And what about a startup who they're just beginning, they have, they still have those manual processes for the most part, and they're trying to set themselves up and avoid getting to that stage that you just mentioned with the corporates where they have many different systems, read many different things, and even still some manual processes. How would you advise startups now to even think about their own IT infrastructure in order to be prepared. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. In fact, in the last few days, I've had a couple of calls from early stage startups. And the basic thesis of those discussions, I'm not going to name any names, but the basic thesis of the discussion was, Roland, we have got to where we are bootstrapping ourselves. We feel we are in a comf comfortable place to go to the next level, right? How can we get there? And I said, are you describing to me a go-to-market problem that you need to scale up quickly? And they said, pretty much yes. So I said, okay, let's start with what made you get here today where you are? And what part of that that enabled you to get here 
can take you to the next stage. And I was rather surprised with a couple of them because they said, we don't think anything that helped us, that got us here is going to take us to the next stage. And then when they told me that, I had to prod further because I pretty much analyze every single component of the discussion. And what happened was we got into the dynamics of how they got their current customers that have got them to where they are. And we then got it really down to pinpointing what was it that actually made it work for them. Now, what makes it work for one company is definitely not going to be the secret sauce for another company. Why? Because number one, we are all different as human beings. We have a different DNA. And that makes the DNA of the company, right? Second thing is the different background and history of the company as well as the different strategies and goals make companies different. And they have really found what makes them unique and what makes customers want to work with them. Now, if you're not going to leverage that, then maybe you're going to copy your competitor. You're, you're not going to be true to yourself. And we got round to pinpointing what made them unique. And that then said, okay, so the, the key question was, now that we understand what was the core element that got us here, how do we scale that? And that meant, what is the core process that we need to build to take you to the next level? And that's not putting in place 25 different processes. Hell no. That's, that's focusing on two, max three core processes that are going to take you to the next level. It's about, you know, doing it excellently, repetitively, in a scalable way. And that means how can we start homogenizing the, the tools and applications we use? If we need to be on the same page, how can we ensure that everybody's on the same page? What tools and applications and technologies should we homogenize? And my recommendation, if I'm working with staff from really early on, is clarify that right at the beginning. Because what you don't want to go through is too many changes along the journey. And with, with a lot of software as a service products out there, a lot of that can be, you know, all, a lot of that cost can be made variable. So long as you're not compromising security, confidentiality, et cetera, because that's, that's critical. You don't have to tell us the name of the, the company, but could you maybe elaborate a bit more on what in general was the thing that made them unique? And how does that relate to then a core business process? Because in my understanding, they could be totally different categories. What makes you unique so, might not be a business process. So this is a startup that is in the healthcare space. They basically enable healthcare uh, the different players, let's let's be more, more broad. They help different players in the healthcare ecosystem with their technological needs, meaning uh, hardware, uh, software, cloud, machine learning, uh, AI, etc. And what they realized as we went through that process was one of the key drivers of what brought them customers were their cybersecurity capabilities. So if you're not able to pinpoint 
how those customers came in the door. What was it that worked? What was it that was done to bring customers on board? What was it that was not even thought of and not done because that can be explored moving forward? It also shows you where the emphasis has been in their go-to-market. And the emphasis in that discussion was clearly around their cybersecurity capabilities. And here's, here was even the funnier thing. It was hardly noticeable that they did cybersecurity when you looked at the website. That's interesting then that that's uh, what right. their, right. their customers in. Right. And which told me that they are not even, when I saw that, and, and I, I, I kind of pointed that out to them, I concluded with them, even before they could tell me, was, okay, so you guys haven't even done any push marketing or commercialization. Everything has been pull, meaning the customers have walked in through the door. And now, to scale, you want to do push. So you better get focused on how you do the push. And that's a mindset shift for them as well then. Right. So it is really important to get into the details. Uh, I mean, the way, the way I, I describe it is, you will see from my image on the screen that I'm like hovering above Earth. But then when you're, ho when you're hovering above Earth, what do you see? You see a forest. But then when you zoom into the forest, you start beginning to see trees. And each tree looks different, right? So I always like to start with that holistic perspective and then zoom into the details because the details can be quite revealing of the forest. And for those listening who can't see Roland's screen, he's Zoom background is the night sky of outer space and Earth in the middle. So, Roland, you have an extremely diverse background as far as locations. We talked previously about different languages and your personal experience as well. So with all of this, why do you think that diversity in startups is so important? Even before we think about startups, I think about individuals, right? I, I think I spoke earlier about the basic component of society is the human being. And given that, we as individuals uh, will notice that as digi digitization, you know, uh, gets more ubiquitous, there will be less importance placed on geographical boundaries. And because of that, uh, what we will see is that individuals will need to have a more holistic view of the world. Now, personally, uh, as someone who has traveled, I try to break it down in, into two categories. You're either a traveler or you're a tourist. I prefer to consider myself a traveler, which means that when I go somewhere, I try to learn the local culture, the local language to integrate and to really understand the dynamics of the country, the place, the culture, the people, because it's only through understanding that can I better relate with human beings in wherever they may be. And when you do that, what you realize is that as human beings, we have pretty much the same desires, which is we would like to have a happy life. 
we would like to have fun. We would like to have work and, you know, get on in life, so to say. Whereas if your perspective is that of a tourist, then you really don't integrate. <laughs> you, you go to the, the most visited spots. You may eat at one or two of the most uh, known restaurants. And then you can say, okay, I've been to this country. And when I've had friends who have been tourists, I say, I typically throw them a challenging question, which is, okay, so what did you learn, right? And I think the answer you get will tell you very much about their background in terms of their education and their perspective. And when you bring that to the startup world, if you really have a diverse background, if you've tried to integrate wherever you've gone, it really enhances your ability to listen. It enhances your perspective. It enhances your knowledge of a situation to quickly understand, analyze, and interpret it. And when in the, in the startup world, the more diverse startups tend to have a diversity of talent. And when I say diversity of talent, I'm not just thinking of, you know, diversity of background or experience or origin or ethnicity. What about gender? What about people who are impaired in one way or another, sight, sound, uh, ability to walk, etc.? In fact, if we have a more open mindset and are willing to listen, we realize that each individual brings something unique to the table. Sometimes what happens is we as individuals, because we look outwards in the sense that we're born with two eyes that look outwards, we don't spend enough time looking inwards to really understand what makes us as individuals unique. It's only through our understanding of ourselves and what makes us unique that we will see what differentiates us, what unique capabilities we bring to the table. Everyone brings something unique. And it's bringing those unique capabilities together in a startup that really makes it unique and differentiates it as it journeys forward to become a global corporation. So yes, diversity is, is important because as you try to embark on new markets, it speeds up your understanding of that market, of the culture, of the dynamics of that market and helps you scale the business much quicker. It's really beautifully said. And I love how you're able to link it to such clear reasons why. And I feel like that's so important. And especially the aspect of really listening and being willing to accept something different a new place, a new culture, a new mindset. And I think that it's easier said than done for a lot of people, a lot of companies. And that experience of just learning to listen, I, I think even can help you to realize maybe unconsciously you were biased in some ways and even help you to grow as an individual, as a leader to realize that there's different perspectives. Totally agree, Tiffany, totally agree. And uh, I mean, let's, let's just take one, one element you mentioned about me, which was languages, right? Uh, 
language is something that we use to communicate. And I learned as a child at home, we spoke two or three languages. And I think that gave me mental flexibility to learn new languages. But then also through my experiences, there was something interesting I learned about myself, which was I am absolutely incapable of learning a language in a classroom setting. Why? Because the way languages are, thought, are taught today in schools are as a set of rules. And when you teach things as a set of rules, the normal psychological reaction is, I don't want to make a mistake, so I build this inert fear of saying something wrongly. However, the some of the languages that I speak fluently, I actually never learned in a classroom. I had the trick of buying a dictionary, which was a, a bilingual dictionary. And I bought, for the first month, I used to buy the same newspaper in English and in the local language, exactly the same newspaper. And I would read both, even though I didn't understand it. And then I would watch the news bulletins just because I wanted to understand the pronunciation. And then I made a lot of mistakes, but I, did, I wasn't really bothered about the mistakes. I was more interested in what I was learning. And then as I realized that some people didn't like me making mistakes, I started practicing in what I call environments where you're not going to be judged. That is with your local news agent, the bus driver, the cab driver, the restaurant or the bar or whatever. And that way I learned. And it's only practice that helps you learn a language. So if we take that same attitude of not having fear of making mistakes, because as humans, we are imperfect and we will always make mistakes. So if we take that attitude to the other dimensions of our life, such as work, play, you know, social, then it enhances our learning experience as individuals. It broadens our mindset. And therefore, the other reason I focused on language is because language is powerful. Our choice of words, say, for example, diversity, can be interpreted many in many different ways. Some people, because of their experience, they see that only as gender diversity. But I see diversity much more broadly. I see it as gender, as ability or impairment or you know, language or experience or even perspective of how broad or how narrow our view of the world is. And I think having that breadth is not saying that it is being imposed on you, but rather understanding that variety is the spice of life. Obviously, I'm from the, can't tell from my accent, from the U.S., right. moved to Europe. And so what advice would you give to young people who would like to come to Europe and maybe even found a startup or work for a startup, but are coming from outside of Europe? and they might not speak the local language or be familiar with the culture, you know, how can the ecosystem be more open to that? And how can people outside be motivated to actually come into Europe? Okay, so I would say there are two dimensions to that. Let's look at the individual dimension first. 
the, what I would recommend to individuals is first know your why, know who you are, be self-aware, articulate the value you intend to bring, create, or develop. And if you don't, then at least if you're not able to articulate that value, then at least have a clear purpose of what your contribution is going to be. Number two, keep, keep your eyes open and be on a journey of learning. Our, our life of learning doesn't stop when we finish school or when we graduate. It's a continual process. And we need to be cognizant that that is a process that's never ending. It's our choice whether we want to or not. We always have that choice. But if you don't, then it's, it's, it's your choice to say, okay, I am going to be stagnant. And that choice of stagnancy with regard to knowledge means that you will be less marketable in terms of your skill base. So knowing the pros and cons of the choices is also important, right? And when you're going to a specific country, I would say, do your research, understand the country uh, or market that fits with what you're intending to do. Some people have clarity. I want to be a doctor. Fine, that's great. Where is the need for those type of doctors with regards to the specialization you as an individual want. Now, what would be the advice to the countries and the policymakers? That's a different question. And I think that's also a question about policymakers broadening their mindset to look at it from a, from a creative perspective. Everyone nowadays in a digital economy can be a creator, uh, creative content, creative knowledge, creative services, creative products. If we really want to enable uh, commerce across boundaries, across geographies, without having that diversity of perspective, it is going to be less, uh, or rather more time, it would be more time consuming, less speedy in getting to market. So having that knowledge within your organizations is important. And that also needs to be balanced in, in terms of the social context, because some countries in Europe feel that having people come in may be a challenge to the local uh, you know, uh, availability of jobs. And I think that's also another important thing policymakers need to say and do, more, more importantly than say do, is about creating the mechanisms to reskill their populations. Uh, if the population, the existing population, doesn't have the opportunity to reskill, then obviously they will see it as a social problem of having, you know, uh, non-citizens come in. I don't want to use the word foreigners because that might be understood wrongly, but, uh, you know, non-citizens come in would be perceived as a social challenge uh, in that their jobs are being taken away. But I think there can be some degree of cohesion if the right tools, mechanisms, opportunities are put so that people are more empowered to make the right choices. So it's all a question about balance. It's not about, it's not an if, it's more and. And the question is finding the right balance to articulate and rather than or.
what would you say then for, so that's for the individuals who want to come, the policymakers, what would you advise for startups who are now reflecting and looking at their own companies and saying, wow, we really need to improve in diversity. How can we find some great diverse talents and how would you suggest to them to start that search? I'll give you I'll give you an example of a specific scenario with one of the companies I was helping get into different markets. And one of the challenges they had when they did their initial outreach to those markets was that they didn't get any replies. And I asked them a few basic questions. So you reached out. How did you reach out? In what language did you reach out? In English. Okay, great. And do they speak? Is English the spoken language? No. Okay, fine. So let us do the outreach with the documentation and everything adapted to the local language and the local context. Once that was done, then they had already built proximity to, to, to that market. We engaged in initial meetings and they got a fabulous response. And they then ran with that. My view to them was start going in slowly, especially into new markets, understand the dynamics of the market, the specificities of the market, start with a couple of pilots, depending on, obviously depending on the type of product or service that you're launching. And then, as those pilots show success, start building the local team. And Tiffany, just to be clear, I think that plan also has to be balanced with regards to your availability of resources and funding. It's, all those components have to come together in terms of the business plan and how the business plan is executed. So it's a capabilities, it's a talent, it's a market view, you know, um, and the financial the financials need to accompany it. Yeah, no, that makes sense from the financial point of view as well, and making sure that even your investors are on board with investing in the future of diversity as well, more diverse founders and things like that. And one, one point, one point that I think that is important and very, very relevant to the European context is, I think something we didn't quite speak about earlier is that different cultures have have different perspectives in terms of the short-term view versus the long-term view, right? And that that is also an important factor to take into account. If you, if you look at a lot of the successful startups from the U.S is that the way they've built their business is very much a long-term view. Uh, they, they have built it in terms of how can they scale globally. They have built it with uh, talent from different parts. In some cases, possibly less or more. Uh, but with that underlying thesis in some way or another. Whereas in Europe, possibly uh, due to aversion to risk or the perspective of, you know, very short-term uh, approach at times is because of the background education, the lack of diversity as well. So that those things are all interrelated in one way or another. And so I'm so glad that you were able to join today, Roland, and we had a great conversation that I'm really excited to share with everybody. Thank you very much, Tiffany for the opportunity and the time. 
This episode is sponsored by Grow by SAP.